Welcome to episode 41 of the Going From Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. On today's episode, I welcome Chris Fortune to the show. Chris is the Montana Regional Director of the Mule Deer Foundation, which is a nonprofit aimed at the conservation of mule deer and black-tailed deer. In this episode, Chris and I discuss the current state of mule deer across Montana, including their declining numbers and the challenges for mule deer and mule deer habitat across the state. We discuss the types of projects that the Mule Deer Foundation participates in, and we discuss how interested parties can get involved. Guys, mule deer numbers are on the decline, and they're in as bad a shape as they've ever been across Montana. If you hunt mule deer, or if you ever plan to hunt mule deer, I encourage you to listen to this full episode, and I encourage you to get involved to the extent that you can. One quick note, we did have a few audio issues in this episode with Chris's microphone. I tried to clean it up as good as I could after we recorded, but there are still a few artifacts in there, so apologize for that in advance. But I do encourage you to listen to this episode in its entirety. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors for helping to make this podcast possible. Check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Seasons are closed across most of the Midwest, and the off-season is a great time to rehab your gear. Head on over to Stealth Outdoors to pick up some climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, or stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and to place an order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, on the show today, I'm joined by Chris Fortune. Chris, how are you doing? Good, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So, Chris, uh, we've met each other a couple years ago now, working through the Mule Deer Foundation. And that was part of the reason I wanted to have you on today is to talk about mule deer and mule deer conservation. Most of my show focuses on like hunting tactics and, you know, whitetail specific stuff. But uh, as of, I'm from Michigan originally, and now being out West, mule deer has become one of my favorite species and favorite species to hunt. And uh, mule deer are in kind of a tough spot. So why don't you give us a brief intro, who you are, how you ended up with the Mule Deer Foundation, and then we'll get into uh, mule deer in Montana and then across the West more in general. Sure, sure. Well, like I say, my name is Chris Fortune. I'm the regional director in Montana for the Mule Deer Foundation. Uh, I've been working for them now for five years. Prior to that, I spent 13 years with the National Wild Turkey Federation as both a chapter chair and a regional director for Montana and Wyoming. Uh, been doing this conservation type work for 23 years now. So it's kind of my passion. Um, I'm a firm believer in we have to take care of we got to take care of our wildlife and uh, do things for them if they, if they can't do it for themselves. So, um, so yeah, I love working for the Mule Deer Foundation. I, I've got, I'm a big passionate mule deer hunter uh, and conservationist. Um, grew up in Missouri as a kid. My dad moved us to Montana when I was 14. So I, I too enjoy hunting whitetail. Um, in fact, went back to Missouri this past fall and hunted whitetail with some of my dad's old hunting buddies and took a nice buck. So that was kind of fun to go back and uh, reminisce over my childhood memories but um anyway uh mule deer gosh there's a lot to talk about um and you know interrupt me anytime you want but uh um, the mule deer foundation is the only organization in the world that strictly does conservation work for both mule deer and blacktail deer Um, our mission statement is simple we ensure the conservation of mule deer blacktail deer and their habitat uh, and that's exactly what we do. We, we raise monies to uh, improve habitat. We also use some of our money to improve uh, access to public lands. And we have done, um, we've done a lot of work in the 35 years that we've been in existence. We started in 1988 and last year we celebrated our 35th anniversary. So 
Um, yeah, so that's kind of a background of me. Um, so fire away on anything you might want to know. Yeah, so let's talk about the the state of mule deer. So you, you read this in the news a lot, conservation news, that mule deer are one of the only big game animals with a declining population. You know, there's been tons of modern conservation success stories like antelope, I think in the early 1900s, they were basically extinct and now there's back a couple million and, and the elk have recovered and are spreading out over Montana and the other Western states. But the mule deer seem to be struggling and uh, Montana specifically, even since I moved here five years ago. So I moved here in 2019 and I've hunted every year. seems like the numbers have decreased. And so I'd like you to talk about some of the challenges that the mule deer are facing in Montana and across the West. And then maybe some of the things that the mule deer does in order to uh, promote conservation and habitat. Sure. Sure. Well, you're correct, Jeremy. Uh, mule deer numbers are on the decline in, in most parts of Montana and a lot of places in the West. A lot of reasons as to why um, I'll focus on Montana because that's what I know the most about. Uh, here in Montana, it's it's a combination of things. We, we are losing prime habitat to urban sprawl. Um, our population is growing pretty rapidly in Montana. A lot of ranches are being sold. They're being subdivided up into ranchettes. Um, a lot of that is prime winter habitat. You know, people look at it as ugly sagebrush country, but it's, you know, sagebrush is a prime prime food substance or food source for our mule deer in the wintertime, especially. And so we're losing habitat that way. We're still struggling with conifer encroachment and other invasive species on the landscape. Um, I've seen photos of mountain ranges around, let's say down around Ennis, Virginia City, that were taken 60, 70 years ago and the, the mountains were completely uh, free of conifers. Uh, they were covered with you know, sagebrush and good, good winter habitat. And now they're totally covered with conifers. Uh, not that mule deer won't eat them, but it's the last source of food for them. They, they don't, they don't like it. It's not really that uh, uh, nutritious for them. So, you know, we've struggled with a couple of bad years of drought. Uh, we have a major predator problem. Um, we have in, in my opinion, and a lot of other opinions, um, and we applaud FWP for finally tackling this problem, but, you know, we, we give out a lot of tags for mule deer in Montana. Uh, historically, you know, especially eastern Montana, region six and seven, it's always been common for people to go over there and shoot six, seven mule deer does, uh, plus fill their A tag with a buck. And those days are probably no longer going to exist uh, because our, our numbers aren't handling the pressure. Um you know, when you look back at the 70s, when a lot of the uh, mule deer management plans were put into place back in those days, we had a lot of mule deer and we only had about 600, 650,000 people in the state. Now we're approaching 1.2 million. We've got a lot more hunters out there that are resident hunters and we still give out a ton of tags to non-residents. Um, so a combination of probably giving away too many tags. Um, we have, like I say, uh, we, we have a problem with a lot of coyotes on the landscape. I mean, there's no market for them. So a lot of people aren't trapping them and hunting them like they used to. You know, we have more mountain lions across the state than we've ever had. Uh, they're expanding all across the state. There's, there's really probably not a place in Montana right now or a county that doesn't have a mountain lion in it. Uh, we've got more bears than we've ever had before. Um, the wolves are here to stay. Uh, they definitely take their fair share of deer as well. Um, so... You know, all those different pressures combined, 
and you you stack those on top of an animal like mule deer who really are kind of a very shy timid animal they don't like to compete on the landscape with other wildlife um you know we we've seen areas where the elk have kind of the elk are doing really well in montana and they move into areas where they they've never been before and all of a sudden the mule deer disappear um we know it's a natural thing for them to do because they they know that they can't compete with an, a bigger animal like that on the especially on the winter landscape so they migrate out but where they go we don't know um, FWP from my conversations I've had with, um, some of the commissioners and biologists, they are becoming more proactive on trying to get this situation under control, which I applaud them for. Um, mule deer's really never taken the big stage here in Montana. It's usually all been about elk and sheep. Um, and I understand that. Um, uh, but the, you know, the feelings, up until the last couple three years is, oh, we got plenty of mule deer. Oh, they got everything they need. They got plenty of water. Oh, they don't migrate anywhere. There's no sense putting collars on them because we're not going to get any good information out of those. Well, the, that that thought process is, is, is now starting to change. And we're seeing uh, some proposals to put some collars on deer next year uh, in different parts of the, of the state. Um, the drought, those two years of bad drought here recently proved to us that these deer will migrate. And they will go long distances to try and find adequate food. Um, there wasn't much food on the landscape during those two years of those droughts. And, and uh, you know, we start seeing fewer numbers in Montana, but states like South Dakota start talking about how many mule deer they're all of a sudden seeing. Um, so it's not that far away for them to, uh, to travel, you know. Um, so... A lot more studies need to be done, and I, I see those studies starting to happen. I see a lot of changes being made from a FWP standpoint. Um, as far as tackling the issues of licensing and things like that, um, they just announced, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago at the last FWP meeting that they are doing away with, with mule deer doe tags in regions that would be used on uh, public lands. So that's going to help a lot. They're still going to issue some, but they're only going to be valid for private land. So they will be they will be available to be used on block management as well, but strictly private land. So um, that's going to help our doe numbers, or it should. And um, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a tough time for mule deer. Um, you mentioned uh, that it may be being the only big game animal in North America whose overall numbers are declining, and and I've heard that from experts uh, who feel that um, because, like I say, it's not just Montana. So yes, there's areas in Montana where the numbers are doing quite well, but there's more areas where they're not. And um, so like I say, it, it kind of got to a bad state, but now it's starting to be looked at seriously. And I, I don't think it's too late to turn the curve around, but uh, whatever changes FWP decides to make, they're going to have to keep them in place for a while to see any immediate or long-term positive changes from it. So yeah, got a lot of work to do. Yeah, it sounds like it. And obviously, I'm not a biologist or a researcher, but just from my own observations in the field over the last couple of years, you mentioned the drought. And it seemed like last year, Wyoming and Colorado got a lot of the press for the really difficult winter they had. And they had huge die-offs in antelope and mule deer, unfortunately. But there wasn't much. Uh, a lot of the areas like you talk about in eastern Montana, where, where the sage and grass is the primary winter food source, 
Mm -hmm. th those areas from the drought really suffered and, and there wasn't winter range food on the landscape like there was maybe the first year I was here in 2019 or 2020 prior to that okay. drought and it that seems to have taken a pretty significant toll on the deer over the last year or two. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, and, and mule deer have kind of a, I don't want to say they have a special diet, but they have a preference for a lot of the foods that they do eat. Um, you know, they will, they will turn into a browser if they have to, but you know, they're, um, they like, they like things like sagebrush and, and, and things like that, that you find on the open plains. But when there's a drought situation, there's really the only thing that survives those droughts is the sagebrush, uh, you know, and, and even to, if it's a bad enough drought, even that will die. So there just wasn't much food for those couple of years after those droughts and fawn survival rates suffered from it. Uh, the does, you know, hobbled through winter, fairly malnourished, um, a lot of them aborted their, you know, their, their, uh, fawns, uh, because that's just nature's way of handling it. And so, and then of course, you know, we, we really haven't had a really bad winter for the last three or four years, but the droughts basically have the same impact, um, except that it causes the animals to suffer throughout the summer. They can't store up the amount of fat that they need to get through the winter. And if it's a cold winter, they're still going to struggle with it. So yeah, in Montana and Col or Wyoming and Colorado and northern Utah, those states got hit by a lot of snow. Uh, they had a high mortality rate down there. Uh, we've we've heard of some good mortality rates, high mortality rates, like in the Bridger Range, uh, Bozeman, Gardner, uh, even north of there. Um, they had snow on the ground nonstop last winter, uh, where a lot of parts of the state didn't have any snow. That seemed like it just kept snowing and snowing and snowing in those areas. So we have heard of quite a few mortality of deer and sheep and elk in those areas. Um, so, but we didn't suffer nearly as bad as some of the states did. Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar with the Mule Deer Foundation, again, I think that's going to be most of my audience. Talk to me a little bit about the fundraising, like what kind of methods are used and once those monies are raised, where they go and how they're implemented in the, you know, in the field, or I don't, I'm not even sure if there's a lobbyist or you know, where those dollars are going. And, and another thing that I thought was interesting when I first started volunteering for the organization was the percentage that goes back into the field, you know, compared to some other nonprofits. So maybe talk about that a little bit too. Sure. Be glad to. It's one of the things I actually love to brag about for the Mule Deer Foundation. Um, even though we've been around for 35 years, there's, there is a lot of people have never heard of us. Um, we've never really gone out of our way to spend a lot of money on marketing and advertising and things like that. Uh, we do most of our fundraising through our banquet system, and then we put on a giant, uh, the Western Hunting Western Hunting's, Western Hunting Conservation Expo in Salt Lake, which is coming up the second weekend of February. That's an annual event. It's our biggest fundraiser of the year. It's a huge, huge sports show. Um, but yeah, here in Montana, um, we we we're doing a lot of good, positive work in Montana. We now have seventeen chapters in Montana. Uh, we've got a brand new one starting in Haver this year, which is I'm really happy about because we haven't had a lot of presence up on the High Line, and they're suffering with the same deer problems as other parts of the state. So we're gonna, that's gonna help us not only raise some dollars for habitat, it's gonna help us raise a bigger voice. Um, my main mission today is, yeah, we have to raise dollars for habitat work, but it's really important that we raise a bigger voice and educate people on what's going on with mule deer and other wildlife, and have them speak up. Um, um, 
one thing I do hear from FWP officials all the time is that when we reach out for uh, for our for comment, we never hear from anybody, and uh, we use a lot of that. They use a lot of that comment as some of their scientific research to make changes, and most people don't know that. Um, you know, our we used to have check stations all over Montana that were open seven days a week, twenty four seven, and now we're lucky to have them open a full weekend, and and the, the hours that they're open are limited. So they, they're, they're not getting as much scientific data coming through check stations as they used to. And it's, it's mainly a problem of manpower and budget. So not much we can do from that standpoint. But um, yeah, one of the things we're really proud of, Jeremy, is that 88 cents on every dollar, net dollar that we raise goes right back on the ground, putting some kind of project, uh, habitat project uh, on the ground. So we pride ourselves on that. Uh, it's the best in the industry. Um, I've heard I've heard averages from other organizations and they don't even come close. The reason we can afford to do that is we don't have a lot of overhead. Um, I think we are we're we're reaching somewhere around 50 employees nationwide now. Um, we have uh, we have a lot more people on our conservation side than we do on our field staff. The field staff are the ones that put on the banquets and and those kind of things, the fundraising part of it. But um yeah, we pride ourselves on that. And we also pride ourselves on the fact that we have a lot of good partners that we, agency partners that we team up with, uh, RMEF, Sheep, Pheasants, Forever, uh, National Wild Turkey Federation, BLM, State, uh, Forest Service. We partner with all those guys and we can usually, on a good year, we can leverage $1 into $7. So for every dollar we throw in the kitty, we, we have this relationship now that we can usually turn that into $7. So, you know, we're able to do literally hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in habitat work. Whereas if it was just strictly left up to our money, we wouldn't be able to do that. So it, it's all about relationships. Um, it's all about relationships, even starting our, our chapters, you know, uh, you got to find the right people that are passionate about mule deer. Uh, they, they know, what our purpose is. We're not out to throw a party. We're out to um, provide a good time for everybody, but we want to raise a lot of money for habitat work. And that's, that's what we specialize in. It's just that a lot of people have never heard of us. So, but it's getting better. Yeah. And let's talk about maybe you mentioned the habitat projects. Give me an example or two or some of the actual projects that have occurred over the last couple of years, things that come to mind that were significant when, and I don't know if that's more uh, geared towards like like reservoirs and stuff or access agreements or, or all that, maybe talk about some of the things that those uh, monies go for. Sure. Well, historically, you know, I've been here five years now. And when I first came on board, I would go over to Eastern Montana and I would talk to some of the biologists over there and I would say, Hey, we've got this money. We're looking for projects. And to be honest with you, their answer was, we don't have anything. Our mule deer don't need anything. They don't, they don't travel. They have plenty of water. We don't need water guzzlers out on the landscape. Um, what they were looking for was money for like conservation easements and things like that, which you're talking, you know, millions of dollars in, in most cases, trying to buy big branches or secure conservation easements on them. Um, there wasn't a lot that we could help with that. So a lot of our habitat projects in Montana over recent years have been more geared toward regions one, two, three, and four. Um, Gosh, there's so many of them. Uh, we do a lot of, especially in Western Montana on the Forest Service, we've done a lot of uh, money, thrown a lot of money toward prescribed burnings, uh, thinning out over infestation of forests, um, 
trying to re rejuvenate the the good food source on those landscapes after you know uh, after fires have gone through maybe and ravaged them or whatever we've done sagebrush uh planting projects uh where we go in and plant seedlings um across a few hundred acres at a time we have pulled up literally hundreds of miles of fencing across the state um People don't really think of that as a conservation project, but there are there are literally hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles of fencing across Montana that really serves no purpose. Um, it, they haven't been used for years, uh, but they do slow down and prevent a obstacle for those animals that are migrating in the winter. Uh, we always lose a few of them that get tangled up in the fences. Um, it just never fails. So, you know, like right here in the Bitterroot Valley, I live in Darby. Um, we pulled up seven miles of fence. It took us two years to pull it all up, but it was on a private ranch, but he bordered forest service and it was a key transition area from Montana into Idaho for our migrating herds of elk and deer and sheep. Um, we figured we're, you know, that's going to help us save, you know, several dozen animals over the course of a few years. Um, those kind of projects are fun. They're not, they don't cost a lot to do. Uh, we've also helped fund uh, weed spraying to go in and spray invasive weeds. Uh, you got to be really careful on those because, man, if you get a noxious weed that comes into an area that's never been there before, it can overtake the landscape in just a matter of a few years. Um, so we, there's a lot of different projects. We're always looking for new projects. Um, that's one of the benefits of trying to have as, as many chapters around the state as we can because it actually gets more eyes and ears open for us in those areas. More people talking to the biologists, uh, the Forest Service officials, BLM, all that. Um, the more people that we have coming to our banquets, uh, the more people we have out there helping us find projects to to spend conservation dollars on. So, yeah, it's it, it's been a very a big success here in Montana. I mean, what three years ago we we partnered up and we leveraged all of our dollars and we did just under $2 million of habitat work in one year, uh, various things. We, we even helped fund access issues. Um, a couple of years ago, we helped fund um, what they call the Dearborn Creek um, access uh, project up by Augusta. Uh, it was a small purchase of land, 200 and some acres, but it was expensive land. But by purchasing that and, and opening it up to the public, it opened access to over 20,000 acres of Forest Service land uh, on the backside of like the Bob Marshall area. So we're, 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 um, we're cautious and of where we spend our money because we want it to benefit as many mule deer as we can and, and other wildlife. So we're always looking for big, large scale projects and um, yeah, so I, I think we do a great job. Uh, I wish we could find more projects um, since, I'll be honest with you, since COVID hit, the number of projects that come across my desk have been probably cut by three-fourths. And I don't really have an answer as to why. We just keep reaching out and trying to find them. And I think what happened is they fell so far behind during those couple of bad COVID years that it, they're still trying to play catch up, getting some of those projects done that we did help fund. And until they get those completed, um, then they're probably not going to be asking for more money. But um, but we, uh, you know, we're 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 proactive. We'll actually go up to a private ranch and say, "Hey, um, you got any fencing out here you need pulled? 
you know, and, and just because it's on private land, it really doesn't matter to us because if it's going to help access to winter feeding areas, it doesn't matter if those winter feeding areas are on public or private land, uh, the deer, the deer have to have it. And these, like I say, these mule deer do move around the state. They do succumb to pressure of other animals like elk. And um, the more studies that we do and more collars we can get put on some of these deer, which we will help fund that as well, the more information we're going to gather to say, okay, now we have an idea where these deer are going. Um, Wyoming's very proactive with doing those kind of studies. And I think, you know, Montana's finally, you know, finally to the point where it's like, okay, we realize we've got to do something. Our mule deer numbers are really declining quickly. So um, I applaud them for that. And we're going to help them any way we can. Yeah, I think I saw more comments this year than ever on social media about the deer numbers and the hunting experience. And I think that voice uh, among the hunting population, Montana, is really starting to grow over the last year or two. And and you're starting to see some people that are becoming dissatisfied with the the state of you know the affairs currently. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we saw we saw a, a good case of that uh, last fall. We ended up in Region Six. Uh, you know, which is a which is a pretty big CWD area. We can probably talk about that as well. Um, but the chronic wasting disease is pretty is pretty prevalent up there in several hunting districts. And FWP proposed that they were just going to issue out an additional four thousand either sex tags to help try and control that. Well, the hunters um, spoke up in in, in in groves of people um, and said, "No way, no way. We're not going to let." 4,000 bucks get taken off the landscape because, you know, they were smart enough to realize that either sex tags was not the answer. Um, we, you got to be a little bit more, you got to pinpoint those heavy pockets of deer and go in there and, and maybe try and issue more doe tags in those areas. But to issue 4,000 either sex tags, they knew darn well that people are going to go out and start shooting every buck they saw. So they raised up their voice. Uh, it was heard and they did away with that plan. So it, it does help. It does work. Uh, we just have to urge all of our members and and not even non-members to, if you've got if you've got a voice that you want to share, be sure you share it because they want to hear from you. It's going to help them make decisions moving forward on mule deer management. Yeah, and I don't know if we can discuss this. I don't want to get political, but I've seen just from my time living here, which was interesting to me because it it doesn't happen in Michigan. There's not a big contingent of outfitters but two very strong lobbying organizations from what i've gathered in my time here are the united property owners of montana and the guides and outfitters association seems like they have a lot of leverage and and those people are talking regularly to represent the interest of their stakeholders and they're a lot more united it seems like than than some of the uh public land hunters and the everyday sportsmen who don't maybe understand the importance of voicing those concerns and the things that they're seeing in the field to, you know, to get their agenda across. Yeah. Well, I, I have more experience working with MOGA, Montana Outfitters and Guides Association, as far as being in, in Helena and on the state capitol, defending certain bills and things with them alongside of us. You know, they're a good organization. Obviously, their 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 key interest is their guides, you know, their outfitters. Um you know, the biggest, the biggest thing that they, that they get negative comments about is the fact that they try to guarantee a certain amount of tags that will go to the outfitters. And they've had some success with that. They've had other, there's been other initiatives that were brought up on that, on their behalf that, that didn't get passed. Uh, but I've never, I've never felt that they, you know, 
that they didn't they didn't have the best interests of the animals at heart. Uh, it was it was more about licensing and how many permits their hunters were going to get, things like that. So I've I've had them stand up there and defend you know uh, the wolf issue and you know um, you know mule deer numbers, elk numbers, things like that. So um, yeah, I mean it's uh, like I say they've all got their own you know agenda, um, but. You know, I mean, if you, if you want to really get down to the nuts and bolts of the matter, I mean, gosh, you, we've got more people wanting to move here now than ever before, thanks to things like the Yellowstone show, which is literally filmed three minutes from my house. Um, it's driven up property values to where the people that grow up here can't even afford to buy a house anymore. Um, people are coming up here with their, their out-of-state money and they're buying up big ranches. They're blocking them off to hunting. Uh, people like you know, myself that have spent most of my life in Montana. Um, I can name you lots of different ranches that I used to be able to hunt on, but I can't hunt them anymore because they were sold and they basically block it off. Uh, they don't even, they don't even open it up to block management. So uh, it puts a lot more pressure on our public lands when that happens. Uh, we just don't have as much private land to hunt anymore, it seems. So that's a, that's a key element that I think FWP is, they're very conscious about that and they're trying to find ways to entice more ranches to get involved with block management, but it's a money thing. You know, I mean, it's FWP can only afford to offer them so much money per hunter that comes in and hunts on their ranches. And you've got people that are coming in here there again with both in-state and out-of-state money. And they're offering these, these uh, landowners tremendous amounts of money if they will give them exclusive rights to hunt their land. Um, it's a, uh, it's a business. It's, um, hunting has become very commercialized, uh, in, and especially in the last 20 years. I mean, there's every, every gimmick out there that people try to sell, uh, all kinds of new project, uh, products coming out, but people don't understand and maybe don't realize just how much money is being passed around to secure hunting rights on private land. It's, it's crazy money. I mean, it's, I've heard, I've heard as little as $100,000 being given to a rancher to hunt their ranch exclusively for six or seven guys. Um, and, they, and they do that not even knowing if they're going to have tags to hunt it. It's just locking it in for when they do have a tag and they've got the money to do it with. So, you know, that's an issue as well. Uh, but we just try to keep working on access to public lands, uh, try to find a way that we can help FWP open up more private lands to the public through the block management program. Um, you know, it's, they've got to do it. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're heading down a road of when we start having fewer numbers of deer, we start having fewer places that we can hunt. All the pressure gets being put on the public lands and the block management lands. Um, it's going to get to a point where everything's going to be a special draw. And, uh, and I can definitely see that happening in the, in the remainder of my lifetime. Um, and we don't want that. We don't want to be like North Dakota or Utah or places like that, where you have to put in and draw just to go out and hunt a deer. Um, we're one of the very few States out West anyway, where you don't have to do that for just a general deer tag or general elk tag. But if it keeps going down the same road, Jeremy, it's, you're, you're going to see that happening. And they're already talking about changing some hunting districts to a special limited draw area. And, I understand why they want to do that. They want to try and help the numbers come back, but all that's going to do is put more pressure on the public lands in other parts of the state. Uh, 
And um, I live in a I live in one of the premier trophy unit areas of Montana here in the Bitterroot Valley. And the people that don't draw tags over here, if they want to hunt mule deer, they go to one place, and that's eastern Montana, along with Washington and Oregon and North Dakotas and Pennsylvania hunters and you name it. Uh, there's all kinds of out-of-state plates running across that landscape in the hunting season. I want to take a minute to mention HuntingBeastGear.com, co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault. Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products, including Beast Gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast Gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, including the fastening strap. HuntingBeastGear.com has also released the game-changing Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution, with over four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear Stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear Stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, I was, I mean, more so this year than ever, I was, I guess I was shocked. I don't have any other word for it, for how many out-of-state plates that I saw. And and like you said, a lot of states like Washington, I saw probably the majority of the plates I saw were Washington. They have draw seasons, right, for, for general deer. A lot of these states, like you said, North Dakota, um, I was fortunate enough to draw a mule deer archery tag there, but that took me four years. And as a non-resident to get a rifle tag, it's about impossible. And I know even rifle mule deer tags for residents are, they're up to a couple of years now to draw one of those. So it's getting tougher all the time. So um, yeah. speaking of out-of-state hunters, Chris, I want to, I want you to give me your, your best sales pitch for guys that are listening that don't live in one of these Western states, but might want to hunt mule deer or just care about mule deer conservation in general. Give me your best sales pitch of, um, what they can do or why they should join the mule deer foundation or or any organization like that that's going to give conservation dollars to to support this type of conservation sure sure well and i'll and i'll give you a classic example we have we actually have chapters across the country that are in states that do not have mule deer and some of them put on some really big events and they raise a lot of money and they earmark that money they have the ability to sit there and say hey you know we like to hunt montana so we would like to send this this money that we just raised to do habitat work in Montana. Um, you know, if you like to hunt here, it doesn't matter whether you're a resident or non-resident. Um, if the numbers continue to go downhill, they're going to issue fewer and fewer tags. Um, it, it could, it could eventually come to a point where, you know, right now a non-resident has probably a 80% chance of drawing a tag. I mean, they, it used to be, they had to wait two, three, four years. Well, now I know a lot of, a lot of them that get, get a, a tag every year. But if the numbers keep on the downward trend, um, that's going to change a lot. And they're, they're going to be lucky to draw a tag once every five or 10 years um, because they're going to have to cut back on how many they issue. Uh, yeah, they're going to lose a lot of revenue from that. They'll make up the revenue somewhere else. Um, I talked to a lot of Montana residents to say, look, if it's a revenue issue, just increase the tags, that, the cost of the tags that we're paying for because we have the cheapest tags in the country, really. I mean, 20 bucks for a deer tag, $22 for an elk tag. Um, 
you know, they're double that in, in surrounding states, if not more than double that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you've got a passion for mule deer, it doesn't matter where you live. Um, you can put on a chapter anywhere. We have a chapter in Atlanta. I mean, we have some in Minnesota, Michigan, Missouri, you know, places like that. Uh, they're passionate about mule deer. They like to come out west and hunt. They may not get a chance to do it every year, but they can earmark that money into states that they want to really help out. Maybe it's a state that they really like to go to, like Colorado or Wyoming or Idaho. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's a $35 membership, Jeremy. I mean, our membership prices haven't gone up in years. Uh, people like people are always like, well, how can that help? And it's like, well, you know, that $35, we clear almost $30 of that when you subtract out the cost of our magazine that we send out to people four times a year. But it's a great magazine. Uh, we use that remaining profit off that $35 membership and it just goes right into our conservation fund to do habitat work. Um, you know, you get several thousand new members a year that adds up pretty quick. So, um, and then they, you know, by being a member, they get, like I say, they get a quarterly magazine. They will see what kind of projects we're doing all around the West. There's a state spotlight for every state. Um, I have to turn in an article every quarter for a magazine article. Uh, I, I update them on banquets. I update them on conservation projects. I update them on maybe CWD, uh, predator reports, you, you name it. There's a lot of things that we try to cover in those issues. So um, it, it just comes down to whether or not they're passionate about mule deer because they, they need our help. Um, all the other animals seem to be thriving pretty darn well. Um, and mule deer can bounce back, but it's going to take a lot, a lot of funding, improving a lot of habitat that we do have left and uh, better management as far as licensing and things like that go. Yeah. And Chris, one of the complaints I see a lot on social media that's specific to Montana is the season structure. So I want you to take off your, uh, your mule deer employee hat. And just as a hunter, is, are there any changes that you'd like to see? And for people that don't know, Montana season is broken up into two parts. There's archery, which starts the first Saturday in September every year goes for six weeks. Then you got a five day break and then you got a five day rifle season. So um, a lot of the complaints I see are why is there a rifle season? You know, like you talked about in Eastern Montana where it's pretty open for five weeks during the peak of the rut when mule deer are super vulnerable. So do you have any thoughts on that? Would you like to see that either shortened? Would you like to see maybe certain areas where they cut the season off earlier? What, any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, I, I, I'm not afraid to speak up on this. I mean, and a lot of this just is, my, is just my personal opinion. Um, you know, the Mule Deer Foundation, we like to take a stand that um, any changes made to hunting regulations, uh, uh, you know, hunting times of the year, things like that, all be made with scientific data. Uh, we always want it to be science-based, not just throwing a, a dart at the wall and seeing where it lands and, and trying that. Um, so that's the stand that we always like to take because we do have experts in the field that, that know, have access to a lot of the data that you and I don't have. Um, I probably have access to a lot of it that you don't have, but, um, you know, it's, it's a case by case basis. It's a hunting district by hunting district basis. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of proposals out there going on right now. Some of the ones that they just they did change as far as how many tags they were going to give out in Eastern Montana region six and seven for does. That was huge. It was, it was greatly needed. Now we're going to have probably non-residents and maybe even a few residents are going to complain that they can't 
come over here and hunt and take back five or six does in their pickup. But you know what? We can't we can't keep that kind of pressure on them. Uh, there's been too many other variables that have that have had a negative impact on their numbers: the droughts, increased predators, things like that. Um, you've got to you've got to make changes. You got to make changes based on science. Um, otherwise, you're not going to have healthy herds. You know, if if we look at Wyoming, Wyoming only has a couple of hunting districts that actually occur during the rut, but yet people harvest big deer every year down there. Uh, you just have to hunt a little harder. So am I against, um, personally, am I against shortening the seasons or maybe uh, only keeping the rifle season open through the first week of November or something like that? I, I think in certain cases, it would be very, very beneficial. Doesn't mean it has to be kept in place long-term, but if we want to see our numbers bounce back, we want to see the quality of bucks on the landscape again, um, those kind of changes are sometimes necessary, at least for a short term. Um, cutting back on, you know, making certain areas where our deer numbers are low be a special draw area. None of us like that. But, you know, the problem that we have today, Jeremy, to be honest with you, we got social media. And it's real easy for somebody to go out there and say, hey, guys, go hunt this area because there's there's a thousand deer in there. And the next thing you know, you got 2000 people going in there killing a thousand deer. Um, the word spreads really quick. Um, communication channels are way, way more than what they used to be when I was a kid. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, our, our, our local hunters are usually the first first, first people that will complain uh, about shortened seasons. I, I get it. I mean, we, we take a lot of pride in the fact that we're one of the very few states where we can hunt the rut out West. Um, but man, if we keep doing it um, and we, and we continue seeing fewer and fewer bucks on the landscape, then it's going to get to, it's going to get to a point where we're not going to have anything to hunt. You know, um, we've got to quit going into places like the Missouri breaks and letting people go in there and shoot two points and spikes and, you know, our so-called meat bucks, you know, if they want a meat buck, go shoot a whitetail. You know, most parts of Montana have plenty of whitetails. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I talked to a lot of people, you and I know Lenny and, and several others, you know, that hunt the brakes a lot. And gosh, they're seeing more and more predators over there. They're seeing fewer and fewer big deer, what I call, what I call big deer, just mature bucks. Um, you know, years ago, it was, it was pretty common to go in there and get yourself a 150 to 180 inch mule deer and now you can hunt the whole season and not even see one yeah so we've got to make changes folks i mean it, it's, it's it's as easy as that uh, we've got more hunters on the landscape than ever before uh, more predators uh more loss of habitat you know all these things that pile up against mule deer we've got to change something and we may not like it but we may like the results from it that's what i tell people you know it doesn't have to be long term don't yeah. be, don't be afraid to sit there and go, Hey, I support this change because you can voice up and say, Hey, let's try it for five years and see where our numbers are at. If they're, if they bounce back and they're in good shape, then maybe they can give out more tags in that area. Maybe they can lengthen the season, whatever the case is. Yeah. And one of the things that I personally, this is an opinion of mine. So people can flame me in, in my comments if they want, but <laughs> you talked about the population doubling. One of the things that I think doesn't get talked about enough is the technology that's come along in hunting like you've got guys now routinely shooting 400 to 900 thousand yards you know you got 
super accurate laser range finders. You got ballistic solver apps and stuff. And it's like, it's kind of like, uh, the Midwest equivalent of a lot of guys now are, are kind of bouncing back against cellular trail cameras. Right. And then I know Arizona outlawed them. It's like, it's getting to the point where I feel like we have to impose some sort of limits on the technology because I would say if you look back in the seventies, obviously I wasn't Montana, I wasn't hunting, but I'm going to speculate and Chris, you can help me out here. The average guy probably hunted with a, a two to maybe 300 yard rifle. Right. And, and maybe, maybe had binoculars or something, but it, it feels like the, the technology today is so advantageous to the hunter that um, that's gotta be having a significant impact on the deer too. Well, yeah, Jeremy, I mean, I, I almost don't watch outdoor hunting shows anymore because of all the long range shooting that they do. Um, and the fact that they don't even show that they're following up on their shots. I mean, you can't tell from a thousand yards away whether or not you hit an animal unless it goes down. And if there's no snow on the ground to where you can look through your high powered optics and maybe see the blood on the snow, um, are these, are these animals being followed up on? Um, I don't know. I, in many cases, I don't think it's, it's happening. I, I think if you follow social media, look at how many so-called deadheads are being found now. Every year, there's more and more trophy deadheads being found. I mean, you're, they're finding animals that you wouldn't necessarily think would probably succumb to a lion or, you know, be, you know, dying of natural causes or whatever, you know, it, when I was growing up hunting and we were out, spent a lot of time out in the fields. Yeah. We'd occasionally come across, you know, an old gnarly buck that was just, you know, old and he died for whatever reason, but now they're finding like, you know, six, six point bull elk and 200 inch mule deer on the landscape that they're, they're calling deadheads. Um, I've talked to enough people to know that there, there's a, there's a sense of feeling out there and this isn't knocking long, long range shooters because I like to shoot long range too. I just won't hunt that way, but that's just me. Um, that, you know, when you've got a rifle that you continually shoot out to 800,000 yards and you're out there and you see a big bull or you see a big buck, you know, you're, you're tempted to go ahead and try the shot. Um, even though you may be shooting across a Canyon, the winds on the other side of the Canyon may be completely opposite of what they are on your side. You know, you may have, you know, drift on your bullet to where you don't hit them good. Um, there's something that's causing this all of a sudden increase in the amount of big deadheads that are being found. And I contribute some of it to the long range shooting, people not knowing for sure that they're hitting the animals and assuming that they didn't. Um, and then somebody finds them. Um, and in worst case scenarios, you know, the, the, the unethical hunters, and there's always a few, uh, they're tempted to shoot that animal. They're, they're tempted to shoot it because they have a, uh, a, a suppressor on their rifle. They have the, they have the onyx and other systems where they can peg that point of where they shot the animal and they can go back in the spring and they can get the head. Right. Um, you got landowners that are complaining that, you know, it used to be, they could hear people that were shooting illegally on the ranch. And now they can't even hear them shooting. Um, so there's a lot of things I think that come into play to what degree. I don't think nobody, nobody knows. No, uh, it could be, it could be a very small, minute percentage, but um, yeah, technology has, um, I don't know. I think it's ruined our sport in a lot of ways. Uh, it's kind of taken the whole fun of, uh, 
stalking the animal and trying to get in as close as you can for a good shot, good ethical shot. And, uh, and now we're throwing lead at them from, you know, thousand yards away sometimes. So I'm, I'm from the old school. I mean, let's face it. I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up as a kid in the Midwest, hunted my first three years of my, of my hunting life there out of a deer stand where my maximum shot was probably a hundred yards, you know, uh, shot my first two deer with an open sights on a 44 Magnum rifle. So, um, most people shot with 30 thirties, you know, brush guns. Mm -hmm. Um, so things have changed new calibers coming out all the time, uh, capable of reaching out there further and further. Um, yeah, I mean, it, like I say, it's become very commercialized. It's nothing now for people to drop a few thousand bucks on their rifle and their optics. And, uh, you know, you got all the night vision stuff going on now too. Um, you know, I mean, um, if people want to take that technology and do something illegal with it, they sure can. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, I, you know, I think 98% of us are, are ethical hunters and we're not going to do that, but, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I say, you're, you're right. It's just become so commercialized. There's the technology is amazing. Uh, it almost doesn't make it hunting anymore. It makes it more like shooting. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the, the whole reason I brought that up is, is another example of how things have changed. And again, it's just another pressure on the deer or any game animal for that aspect where we're able to shoot those yardages that, not that no one did it 30, 40, 50 years ago, but I would say it's, you know, whatever the factor is, 5, 10, 20 times more common these days for your average guy now to be able to shoot four to 600 yards where... 40, 50 years ago, that never happened or, or hardly ever. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty common. So there again, just a, uh, kind of a negative, a negative variable that impacts our, our, our numbers of animals, you know, um, if animals are getting shot at at long range and they're not being, um, found, uh, or followed up on or whatever the case might be. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to lose those animals too. You know, our, our overall declining deer numbers, I don't think really has much to do with that. But, you know, that's kind of a whole talk about, you know, old school hunting versus new school, school hunting. Sure. Um, but, um, and like I say, I, I'm not against people that shoot long range. I, I love going to the range and shooting long range. I just won't do it at animals that out there where there's variables that come into play that I don't have any control over, you know? Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to risk the bad shot. Anybody that shot long range knows the hardest thing to learn and it takes a lot of time and, and there's no ever an exact answer is reading the wind and it turns out that Montana is pretty windy most of the time. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, right. it's a tough environment to make long shots. So, well, sure. Chris, hey, we're running up here on an hour, but before we get off here, I want to uh, turn it over to you. We talked about the Mule Deer Foundation a lot. For people that want to join or want to even check out the website, give us some examples of where that can be found on social media. Sure. Our, our website is easy to find. You just go to muledeer.org. Uh, you can find all the local events just by clicking on events, click on the state that you're interested in, and then it'll list the, uh, the different locations for the banquets coming up. Uh, we like to say we have 17 chapters in Montana alone. Uh, we'll probably have 16 banquets this year for sure. Um, so I'm going to be pretty busy this year with banquets, but we invite anybody that's never been to one of them to, to come out and check them out. Uh, we, we are known for giving away a lot of guns at our banquets. That's one of the things we pride ourselves on. 
good quality guns, not a bunch of 22s or anything. Um, a lot of good other outdoor industry gear that we give away at our banquets. They're a lot of fun and, and they're a family event. We always urge families to bring their kids. Uh, we usually offer $20 meal tickets for the kids. So we try to keep it as affordable as we can. Um, or they can email me. Uh, my email address is easy. It's just Chris, C-H-R-I-S at muledeer.org, O-R-G. Uh, reach out to me. If you've got a question about another state, I'll refer you to the regional director who takes care of that state. I, I don't have a problem answering the emails. Um, but yeah, I'll come out and check us out. Um, we got a lot of work ahead of us, Jeremy, as you know, and uh, especially yep. here in, in Montana. And there's other states that are struggling as well. So uh, if you're passionate about mule deer um, and you want to do something for them, coming, help, coming to our fundraising banquets, helping us raise some money is, is the first step. Buying a membership, definitely. Uh, that helps. And like I say, it's only $35. So uh, most of us blow that on, on any given day with yeah. your morning coffees and things like that. So yeah, anymore, uh, that's not a whole lot of money. No, it's not. It's not. So uh, I appreciate you having me on here. Um, yeah, it's a great know, it's, message. It's always great to, yeah, yeah. And a great message, important topic. And again, mule deer of, of all the big game species seem to be struggling the most that's why i decided to volunteer that and lenny our, our local chapter president here kind of wrote me into it but i'm glad he did and one of the things just to, to close that i really enjoy about the mule deer foundation that we didn't touch on it's it's a real community oriented organization so chris kind of mentioned uh, only 50 paid employees nationwide uh, all the local as far as i know all the local chapter leaders are all volunteers all the the local staff like myself and a bunch of the other guys we got here in billings and, and gales too are all volunteers and a lot of the community pitches in uh businesses around the community will donate their time they'll donate items or you know gift cards or whatever uh, that sure. we raffle off and, and support so it's a real grassroots organization like you said 88 cents on the dollars going back and it's for a great cause so i think anybody that's uh interested you can rest assured your money's going where it's supposed to. And when you help out the Mule Deer Foundation. Yeah, absolutely. And like I say, if I can close on one thing, I, I just can't emphasize enough. Let your voices be heard. Uh, there's power in numbers always has been um, here in Montana, FWP. If I ever hear any complaints from them, it's, I wish the hunters would speak up. I wish they would tell us what's on their mind. Cause we never hear from them. They have public forums all over the state and they just they just don't turn out for them. So you can't sit back and complain about it if you're not willing to step up and let your voices be heard. Yeah. Great message. And uh, Chris, really appreciate your time and good luck with the banquets here. I think March 9th is the one in Billings. So we'll give a plug to that. If you're in the Billings area, March 9th, you want to come out and have a good meal, have a chance to win some great prizes. Come check that out and uh, we'll we'll see you before you know it, Chris. Absolutely, Jeremy. We'll see you soon, pal. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you.